back, or if you're a first-time listener, welcome aboard. I'm your host, Aiden, and we're here for another exciting episode of The Push-Pull Effect, the podcast where we hear real migration stories from real people. Merry Christmas, everyone. Well, it's a little early, but it's the holiday special, and I'm coming at you in my festive Nutcracker socks and some other shit that I got at Target, you know, just trying to be festive, trying to be in the season. So regarding this show and this episode, I'm going to be testing out some different segments and really just trying to see what resonates with you guys and what sticks. If you have any inputs, definitely let me know. I'm trying to think something fun to do outside of the interview, maybe with the guests, maybe without... I don't know, should I start doing current events, you know, try to mix it up with what's going on today in migration? Should I stick with the country that's tailored? Let me know. With that said, I'm really excited for our Christmas slash holiday special. So because of that this week, there's no migration education, but we're going to have the holiday highlight. So we're taking a step back and, you know, thinking about this difficult year that we have had and really... We're trying to relish in these next few celebratory weeks that we have and just trying to enjoy it as much as possible because it's, it's been a tough year, I think, across the board for everyone. It's been, we've been discovering a new normal, and yeah, 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 you've all probably heard that, so let's get, let's get back to the show. So we're going to think globally about it and really you know, hit some countries that are featured in our podcast and think about what December and the holiday season is like for them because we know what it's like here in the States. You watch Home Alone. You know, there's the whole milk and cookie stereotype. People have stockings. You know, even though I've never done that, I never had a stocking growing up, but I always wanted one. Maybe I'll just do it for myself. I don't know. You know the traditions. There's Santa and the sleighs, and they come down the chimney. What else do we do? I don't know. In New York, there's this giant tree in Rockefeller Center. I know Boston in particular, they, they have like some tree exchange with tree exchange with Nova Scotia, so the giant tree. I don't even know where it is. I should know this, but wherever it is in Boston, it's courtesy of Nova Scotia, so right right there. The first country we're going to explore for their holiday season is Japan. And even though Christmas isn't a national holiday there, decoration and lights are common and people really use it as a time to, you know, meet up with their friends, celebrate, just have a good time. There's Everyone needs an excuse to have a party and a get-together, let's be honest. Also, funnily enough, a common food in Japan for Christmas is fried chicken. Especially from KFC, and that was due to the fact of some good branding on their part. So they penetrated the market very early in 1974 with their Christmas, I'm sorry, their Kentucky for Christmas campaign. So I wonder if my local KFC is going to be open because, I don't know, due to COVID, I'm not going to be in New York eating some curry go with my family, so I have to figure out an alternative for myself. Maybe I'll channel what the Japanese do and have some KFC, maybe I'll make my own sides, maybe I'll do it myself, who knows. Next up, we have Dubai, and you guessed it, I feel like with Dubai, the whole bougie view that we have of it, you guessed it, ostentatious decorations galore, you know, fancy displays, and hopefully lots of shopping, because actually, from what I researched, the stores are open in Dubai on Christmas Day, so if you are a very late shopper in your very last minute, you can do your shopping the morning of if you really want to, but you gotta pay some Dubai prices. So hope you hope you like buying Louis bags for good. I also don't know if they have like discounts or like Black Friday or those kind of sales over there, but who knows? That's something I should have asked Shruti, but maybe for our next guest who's ever touched down in Dubai. Also, what's common in Dubai with some also with some other cities that are on the list is you get a warm Christmas, which is really foreign to me as a new yorker and it's actually something we touch on in the interview but i don't know as somebody from the northeast like imagine like a sunny christmas it just feels all foreign to me but that's the normal for some people and i think that's just a good you know frame of reference to see how this one holiday that's you know so commonplace would really be differently or you know the traditions are slightly different depending on where you are 
advised that most people actually go out to eat and they go to restaurants and hotels and our bars. And like all these places are putting on their best show and, you know, serving their most innovative dishes and just trying to celebrate the holiday season as best as possible. So, you know, one of these days I want to propose Christmas in Dubai to my siblings. So, I mean, I'll keep you guys posted on what they say. Actually, listen to my podcast. They'll text me about it. So, hi, Maya. Hi, Aaron. But let's hop over to Chile. Unfortunately, when I studied abroad, I missed Christmas. Well, that's rather fortunately. But I missed Christmas by a few weeks. I guess I got a little taste of the holiday in the holiday season. But a lot of their traditions are similar to that of those in the United States. Very large Catholic population in Chile. So... You know, that explains the really religious tie to Christmas. So, in a lot of households, you will see a Christmas tree and a nativity scene. I also think a trend is across Latin America. So, let me know, my Latin American listeners. But they will tend to celebrate and have the big grand celebration on Christmas Eve as opposed to Christmas Day. That's the day the family gathers and celebrates. And, you know, the day of Christmas is more like, you know, a day of relaxation. So, you know, you unwind, you relax. I guess you prepare for going back to work or doing what you got to do, depending on, you know, how you're situated. Yeah, so many countries just have a similar way of celebrating. Like, you know, Switzerland does their thing. They they share some customs with their neighboring countries like Germany, Austria. They have many traditions of their own. So they have Advents. Those are very important to them. So like Advent calendars and crowns those are very popular. In smaller villages, they'll have Advent houses. So they'll literally go from house to house and each night. One house shows a feast. That sounds like a good-ass time, honestly. The main meal includes foods like a Christmas ham and desserts such as walnut cookies. So... Seems like an interesting time in Switzerland. Seems like very, you know, rich foods. And due to how culturally diverse Switzerland is, also have influence from other countries. So you can even catch some people celebrating holidays like Epiphany or Three Kings Day, which I believe is the same holiday, just, you know, different names celebrated across a few different countries. So, so I know Christmas isn't the only holiday. I can indeed confirm that Hanukkah is indeed celebrated around the world. Some of the Hanukkah traditions in countries very close to us in Canada actually mimic the ones that we see celebrated right here in the United States. Australia, you, because Hanukkah takes place in, you know, in a warmer climate, they tend to have more outdoor events like block parties, for example, you know, taking up the most of the space and the most of the weather. So it's really, again, in- interesting how the weather and where you are can influence how exactly you celebrate. Now that I'm thinking about it, an outdoor Christmas sounds kind of lit. And, you know, warm, you know, warm rather lit gifts. Maybe you can go, maybe I can just travel for Christmas. That's something I've never done. And maybe, you know, something I can do. But across all, it seems like the holidays in general are time for togetherness and fun and comfort. So I hope... You're listening to this wherever you find comfort. I'm wishing you all, the listeners, a happy holiday. And with that, we're going to get over to our interview, which I'm very, very excited about. Nora is one of my coworkers, and she's from Nairobi, Kenya. And she is very open with her story, very funny, very nice. And when she messaged me expressing some interest, you know, about hopping to the studio and coming on my podcast, she said it was a bucket list item for her. I was very excited to make it happen. So without further ado... Here with me today, I have Nora. She currently works as an analyst, was born in Kenya, but currently lives here in the United States. And how are you? T- I'm doing good. I mean, as good as I guess someone can be <laughs> given the circumstances. Yeah, we're in a COVID-19 pandemic. Also, snowstorm here in Boston. Nora, oh, spoiler alert, but Nora lives in Boston about like 15 minutes away from me. Fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> I've I've spotted you at um, Trader Joe's. 
Yeah, it's my favorite place. It's the it's been the saving grace of my quarantine. That's where I go when I when I want to feel some excitement in life. I know, like, I'm like, oh, a no Trader Joe's item. I have to try it. This is like the highlight of my week. Oh, I think yeah. when I tried the cinnamon roll spread, I, I literally told everyone I knew about it because it was just like the most exciting thing that happened to me that week. I have not tried that, so I'm gonna add that to my shopping list for you next should. time. You should. Hopefully, they still have. It. I don't know if it was like a fall exclusive, but so let's start simple. Where were you born in Kenya, and then? Well, I just answered this, but where do you currently live? Um, I was born in Nairobi, which is the capital city. Um, that's also where I grew up um, and currently reside in Brookline, which is just, um, I think it's within the Boston metro area. I don't know exactly how the zip codes here work. I'm told I'm not precisely in Boston, but um, I do say that I live in Boston. You know, that like, explaining that distinction is very annoying. And then I'm from New York, so people are like, Brooklyn. I'm just like, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I think it's like a town, technically, and they just like refuse to be part of Boston. Yeah, that, that feels very on-brand for this neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So this is the quote-unquote Christmas special holiday episode. So one of the theme it appropriately is so, so I've gauge your mind about the holiday season in Kenya. So like, what is it like when holidays are celebrated? Is it like this time of year? What do people do? Christmas is big in Kenya. December itself is a month. I think mm. it's the end of the year. Um, most people start going on leave like early in the month planning their vacation it's mango season also my favorite Ooh. fruit <laughs> um, mango season always brings with it um fun times it's also the end of the academic year so most students have wrapped up um or like high school students are graduating um, people are ready to graduate to like the next class the following year so it's kind of like a good end to a chapter um and there's a lot of celebration um surrounding it and i think part of it is also like the religious aspect like kenya is primarily christian um so i think as a holiday um there are those like religious um practices which are celebrated right around christmas time there are a lot of church services church events um, and then there's the other more social party side where everyone's kind of free and happy <laughs> the weather is perfect i'm actually supposed to be home right now but i'm stuck here in the middle of a snowstorm <laughs> um the weather weather is really fantastic uh and there's a ton of parties um actually in nairobi it's locally december is locally known as drink summer uh oh. where people kind of go <laughs> all out and um, a ton of social events, concerts. It's really just a good time. And then January is usually the month where everyone um, says that they're broke. So if your birthday falls <laughs> in January, kind of like mine, <laughs> you don't get anything because oh. everything got spent at the end of the, the year. Yeah, everyone's all partied out. Yeah. Thankfully for me, I have a December birthday, so maybe I need to go to Nairobi for it one year. Oh, yeah, you'll definitely have fun. 
And I think it's funny that you said, like, you associate Christmas with, like, like a warm climate and being hot. Because I just, like, I associate Christmas with, like, this and snowstorms. It's just, like, this is, just, I feel like that's what Christmas is supposed to be. So it's just, and it's funny how, like, where you are sort of changes that. Yeah, it's super interesting. But then I think some of the the traditions, which are mostly Western, um, like, they bring with them the feel of the cold Christmas. So, like, if you go Christmas tree shopping in some of the supermarkets, some of the the trees will have, like, the, like, fake snow on top of them, which I find super interesting. It's, like, <laughs> one of the hottest times in the year is, like, December through January, and you go shopping for these things, and there's, like, snow or um, a full-blown, you know, white Santa Claus um, or even just, I guess the locals dressed as Santa Claus, but like Santa with like the white beard, um, when that's very clearly not the demographic that lives (laughs) um, in the city. So we do have those components, which are really interesting to see. Um, And then there's also like some classic movies like Home Alone, which very, very common. I'm sure right now it's probably being played on loop across different um, TV stations back home. So there's kind of those components that remind us these more commercial side of Christmas does come from, or is largely influenced by like how the West celebrates Christmas. Okay, that's cool to see. But speaking of Santa, is that like a thing? Do kids believe in it, or is it just like is it just like a gimmick? It's a gimmick. Um, first of all, I don't think I've ever seen a house with a chimney, so I don't know how people are going to convince their children that Santa comes through your chimney and leave you um, gifts under the Christmas tree. Also in my family, uh, we didn't necessarily celebrate gift giving, like having presents under the tree. Um, The gifts tend to be clothes, like December is the time when you know you're gonna get a a whole new like Christmas outfit. Sometimes as far as a whole new wardrobe, (laughs) that's the time when you kind of get a new fit for every day of Christmas if it's going to be celebrated, especially like if you're traveling to the coast or going going to visit like your grandparents um, in the more rural areas. So I think the gift giving is implied in that your parents will probably buy you a ton of new things, but not to the extent of, you know, like <laughs> wrapping gifts and like putting them under a tree and then having everyone kind of open them. Um, I, th- I don't think that's a tradition that was very common, at least um, within my immediate family and some of my close friends as well. So I actually think the first time I got a, like an official wrapped Christmas gift um, was when I was here actually um, in college at Amherst. Oh, cool. <laughs> Well, I mean, I feel like that's pretty, I feel like that's enough of a gift, like the new clothes. Is it like expected to have a new fit for every occasion of like December, like every day? Yes, at least on Christmas Day itself. Um, And Christmas Eve, too. Um, But then also it's like the variety. So you have like the morning fit, which is the one you'll go to church with. And then afterwards, if you're going to a party or family gathering, you can go, you can like change outfits. So Definitely more than one. So what has your relationship with migration been like? Have you ever imagined life outside of Nairobi for yourself? Or do you have any family members that have migrated or lived outside of Kenya? Yes. Well, um, my my dad is a pilot. And so when 
I was younger got many benefits uh, in terms of being on um, a buddy ticket and was kind of able to travel a little bit with him. Um, and we went to Asia and Europe. And I think, I think from, from like a young age that kind of um, showed me that like living abroad or visiting abroad could be a possibility. Um, and it was within reach, I think, kind of growing up and most of the media you consume being foreign, but then not really visiting the, those places creates some type of um, dissonance where they feel very aspirational. Um, but I think being able to visit as a child um, also just like instilled in me the curiosity. I love to travel and my dad always said, out of me and my other siblings, I was the uh, most fun to travel with because I just didn't want to stay in the hotel. I would want to kind of like wander um, and travel and see the city with him. Um, and so when I was right around high school, I think I, I, I found out about this academy in South Africa called the African Leadership Academy. and. Um, kind of like the essence of what the school is really appealed to me and they bring students from all over the African continent to study in this campus in Johannesburg and I thought that would be really exciting. Um, and so I applied for that and ended up getting in, um, moved to South Africa for two years uh, and lived with peers in this boarding school um, from all over the continent. It was amazing. <laughs> Um, it was, and I, I, I do feel like I formed a lot of lifelong friendships there. And I think sort of like thinking of the most formative years of my life um, have been outside from home. So I think that when I think of kind of moments which have been um, like a changing point or things, places which really changed my perspective, I always think of them as me being independent and coming into things on my own, which have always been related with me not being in Kenya. Um, and so it was in South Africa for two years and kind of seemed like a very obvious next step to apply for school um, abroad. So either in the US or in Europe, um, we had some college counselors on that campus who actually kind of coached us towards applying to foreign universities. Uh, a, a few people did apply to colleges on the African continent, but for the most part, people were looking to the US or to Europe. Um, and the US seemed more promising for a lot of people and also had the most generous financial aid. Um, and that kind of seemed like a very obvious next step. So I think for me, actually, the more what, what seemed more drastic for me was me moving from Kenya to South Africa, which is like a four hour flight, um, than me moving to the US. Cause that seemed a lot more obvious and I knew a lot more people um, from my graduating class who are also moving to the US for their undergrad. Um, but in terms of moving to South Africa, that was a little bit scary. <laughs> but once I did it, I think it kind of showed me that I could live um, anywhere. And I do have a few relatives who moved abroad. Uh, most of them have moved abroad as um, adults. <laughs> uh, so either they 
got a job abroad or got the green card and um, moved to a different country. I have some family in Australia, some um, in the UK, um, some in the US. Um, but for the most part, this actually isn't immediate family. It's kind of just like the uncles and the aunties who you grow up seeing around um, <laughs> who are, I guess, de facto family just by how you know, in back home, you're raised by a village. So kind of everyone who carried you as a child counts. Um, but I'd say the decision was not as influenced by family as just just like a curiosity of what exists outside Kenya. Okay, that makes sense. You've had like this really cool global life. So I definitely, you know, see how this all played out. I'm, I'm kind of jealous though. <laughs> you got that buddy pass experience. Oh yeah, it was, it was great. Um, it was it was a lot of fun and I think for for a little while I wanted to be a pilot as well um, but I realized I could travel without having to be the person steering. <laughs> you don't have to drive <laughs> the plane. The plane. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's that's what my dad calls it. It's like being a glorified driver. You're like a taxi driver. Just you operate a different type of um, vehicle. I could not imagine being a pilot. You have to be too attentive. I can't even drive, so that's another. <laughs> <laughs> same i i have a license but i don't think i deserve it so did you so. Did, okay okay real talk real talk i know i have a lot of friends from around the world and a lot of them have bribed to get their licenses are, are you on <laughs> <laughs> i will i will say this so when i went to driving school um part of the fee that you had to pay to enroll in the test they called it a processing fee but there was no processing fee to get enrolled in the test. The test is free. <laughs> um, and so the processing fee is essentially a, a bribe, but it's it's been integrated into the process. You don't even ask to bribe. It's like you get a receipt for your processing fee. <laughs> it, it, it's just embedded in. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I get the drift. <laughs> yeah. But just more on your experience at like the African Leadership Academy. That seems really cool. Just kids all over the continent. But how was it for you being in South Africa? I imagine Johannesburg is a little different than Nairobi. Yes, it's it's a little bit different. Um, I'd say it's a lot it's a lot more developed in terms of its infrastructure. Um, but I think I think what was interesting about South Africa that was sort of like my first introduction into blackness Mm. um it was a lot more acute obviously coming to the u.s but i think in south africa i could kind of see it a lot more visibly when you have a very prominent white population who identify as like they are south african Um, whereas in kenya i'd see them in the context of like these are expats Um, and they very much acknowledge that they are foreigners i hadn't really met like a white kenyan um but in South Africa, there was that aspect. And then I think the inequality seemed a lot more stark. Um, just even like driving through, because we lived, we lived in this um, suburb, which was kind of close to a more wealthy um, neighborhood, which was mostly white people living there. Um, but some of the projects which we did um, in like community, building were in the townships of South Africa, like Soweto, and these are, I think, what would be the equivalent of the Kenyan slums. Um, So I think 
even just just like reflecting back upon it, it was very interesting. And I think seeing inequality along racial lines, um, not just class, which is typically what it's like in Kenya, but here you kind of introduce the intersectionality um, of both. And then also with some of my classmates at the African Leadership Academy, some of them were South Africans, so just hearing their experiences, recognizing that um, the end of apartheid happened in 1994. So this is a generation who has been raised by parents who lived through it. Um, and I actually found out that they, they're called the born freeze because they're the, the, the first generation that was born sort of like free of that um, system. So I think for me, it was a lot more, my eyes were a lot more open um, into one, being curious about the history of other African countries. Um, and also just, not just history, but also culture. So I really got into, you know, Nigerian Afrobeats <laughs> music, which I'm sure like right now is kind of taking over the world in its own. It really is. Um, right. Uh, but also learning about, you know, South African house music um, and just being a lot more curious about food and culture from different African countries and identifying as an African um, as opposed to, you know, just being Kenyan. So I do like that it gave me some sort of um, pan-African <laughs> identity, if I may, if I may claim it. Um, and I think a lot of it is also just like the people I met there and then establishing those connections and realizing some of like our similarities um, and differences um, as well. And like forming those close friendships, which I still hold very dear um, to me today. And also the prospect of having accommodation in different African <laughs> countries should I ever choose to visit. Yeah, I'm sure that's nice. <laughs> um, which, is, which has paid off. Um, it has paid off a little bit. But yeah, I think, I don't know if that answers your question. I kind of went <laughs> on a little bit of a tangent there. Oh no, it's, it's great. I, I love tangents. But no, I'm, that's really cool, just having that one, having that global network. I think your point about yeah. blackness was also important, because I feel like, I don't know, if there's anywhere to learn about race head on, I, I, I think it'd be South Africa. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah. <laughs> sorry, go no, I guess, sort of, did you have a similar experience in the United States? Like, when you first came here? Not necessarily. Um... I think in some ways, yes, in terms of like being confronted with with blackness and then in in that like identifying as black, I said like I, the first time I, I became black was in the US, um, which is interesting. And I was telling this story to someone that when I was younger, like when, like if someone had asked me to describe like what complexion I am, I would probably say like, you know, chocolate, it wouldn't occur to me to say black <laughs> um, for some reason. So there's that piece. Um, I do think, so if I was to describe like what, what it was like the first time I came to the U.S. was, I remember after, in my first couple of days, um, they, they drove us to Walmart. So like all the international students came a little bit earlier for their own orientation. And I think being inside a Walmart was so overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like all the choice, 
all the options. It was so interesting to me. And right now, actually, like these sort of like big, I don't know what whether it's called Walmart, like a big box retailer, but they do now exist in, they, they, they're there in Kenya, but at the time there weren't any. Um, so I was like pretty alarmed by it, I think. I think from there also just seeing how persistent um, sort of like the commercial consumerist culture is here. But then also, as I saw it here, starting to see it trickle down um, back home. Um, so like, for example, we have Black Friday sales <laughs> in Nairobi. Do we celebrate Thanksgiving? No, we don't. <laughs> but Black Friday has sort of become this global phenomenon. And so people will look out for deals on Black Friday. Oh, I'll have like family members contacting me, asking me, you know, um, can I send you for some stuff to get during Black Friday? And I'm just like, oh, how do you know about this? <laughs> but they kind of do because it's everywhere now. Um, but in terms of the friendships, I, 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 I would say that I've made a few, I made a few American um friends but i i would say that i did gravitate towards the international community once i got to the amherst campus um and like a lot of shared experiences and shared struggles too um especially like as we were graduating um and we had to spend a lot of the breaks on campus together for instance if you didn't have family in the u.s um so just those moments of being um stressed together like they say is it like misery loves company <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not to get dark but <laughs> um i do feel that i i i was yeah i definitely did gravitate towards an international community when i came to the um when i came to the u.s for undergrad and it was quite different from from south africa i i, I do feel that like i i'm I, I definitely soaked in like South African culture. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if I've done that with American culture. Um, so I think I, I've just thought of America as this place where, you know, it's a great place to get an education and to get work experience. Um, I haven't really thought of it as my home. And I think for a while I thought of South Africa as my home. And I don't know whether that just had to do with, you know, um, being on the African continent and identifying with this African identity um, and here feeling a lot more foreign, um, which is interesting to say because South Africa also uh, is known for being very xenophobic, especially towards other um, Africans who live in South Africa, who live in South Africa. Um, but I did, I did feel a lot more foreign mm. in the U.S. Yeah. That's interesting. Is it like, Maybe it's like the immigration aspect of it. I mean, we were in college throughout the reign of President 45. And then there was also just like, was it harder like to get your paperwork in order like for U.S. as opposed to like South Africa? Oh, yeah, 100%. It's like, it's much harder. It's um, a lot more frustrating. And it's also, it's not a guarantee, right? That even if you have admission to this, um, university and you have all your paperwork in order you can just go to the u.s embassy and they can reject you <laughs> um so i think there's a lot more anxiety around um the whole immigration process i did say that when i got my visa um 44 
Hey, Obama, if you're listening, shout out to you. (laughs) Um, He was the current president. And um, Kenya, Obama is a very special place in every Kenyan's heart. And he actually did extend, um, he did extend the validity of Kenya's visas from two years to five years before he left office. And it's still five years. So it's actually been a great benefit um, because even if you're enrolling as a student, you had to get like the two-year visa and then renew it for another two years, even if you're getting into a four-year program. So um, that policy definitely did, did help applying into college. But I do think sort of like, when I think most of the immigration anxiety does come around when you're like applying to jobs and trying to find a company that will sponsor you. And that was the time when there were like one, a lot of cuts to um, all these immigration um, organizations that sort of help process our documentation. Like we were applying for um, our work authorization cards and it just takes a lot longer. And you hear like the number of cases being rejected is increasing. Um, and then also some companies just recognizing that the political climate is not that friendly to immigrants. And so it's a risk um, to open up some roles to foreigners because, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to get them like work visas. And then it ends up being like a sunk cost hiring them if you have to figure out how to relocate them after a while. Um, so you're also hearing cases of like companies which are closing off roles that historically they were very open to like hiring immigrants but just decided it wasn't worth the hassle um so i do think that it definitely played um a large role um especially towards like the end of our graduating years i will say being enrolled in a a liberal, a liberal institution at the time of uh, the election didn't, it didn't, I, I guess it helped. I didn't feel as alienated. I remember having conversations with um, some of my friends who went to school, who went to schools in the Midwest and the Deep South and their reactions following that election being vastly different from what was happening on our campus. Um, so I think that they felt a lot more foreign even on their college campuses. I think for me, it wasn't really something that I felt on the campus. I think it was just like the general climate um, of like trying to apply for jobs. And I think also even right now, like as a working um, full-time employee, it feels like my value to the United States is in my ability to, you know, produce work. and my status is tied to what I'm doing at work. So like even as they're applying for um, all these permits and on, on your behalf, they have to prove that one, you're not taking a job from an American or you're qualified and you have skills that they can't get from an American citizen. And so they give you um, that role in that organization. Um, and so it's very, I do feel that my value here is not, <laughs> in anything else I can do other than my ability to produce, you know, capital. Um, And if that gets taken away, then my value to this country doesn't exist. Um, And that's definitely not the sentiment I felt when I was living in South Africa. Um, So I will say that that's probably where partially it comes from. That was capitalism well explained, but that's literally an awful feeling. (laughs) 
<laughs> but sort of so you mentioned this Obama being very popular. His father is Kenyan and his name is very <laughs> it's like very recognizable. So like the fact that he still has this name that if you go to Kenya, I'm sure right now there are multiple Obamas walking around, probably some were born after he became president. Um but I think it's it's also just like what he represented to the entire world and then um like us feeling like, okay, this is this is one of us. And I think it's the same it's the same energy when we see like Lupita Nyongo when she won her Oscar and seeing her make it big in Hollywood and we're like, Yeah, there she goes. <laughs> you know, um, another Kenyan making it big on the global stage. Um and I actually remember when Obama was inaugurated. We got sent home early from school. It legit became almost like a national holiday. It's like, yeah, we're all celebrating um, because the Kenyan has become the president of the United States. <laughs> Not that he was born in Kenya, um, but like he has visited plenty of times. And when he visits, it's it's like it's like it's like a massive reaction. It's almost like I imagine what Beyonce experiences when she goes to when she travels around and has her like fans everywhere i've only seen that reaction in kenya to the pope when the pope came to, came to kenya um some of these celebrities so obama and the pope have elicited i guess the most <laughs> um joyful response but i think also when he comes to kenya he he like tries you know kenyan food he tries especially when he starts his speeches with an attempt at speaking Swahili, the crowds go wild. It's like, yes, I see you trying. <laughs> um, and his grandmother um, lives in Kenya um, as well, and he does come to see her. So I feel I, I I don't know how to explain it, but I do feel that there's there's a, a shared joy <laughs> amongst all Kenyans when we see you know someone of Kenyan descent winning on the global stage. And I do think that he has improved like Kenya US relations, even just that one, you know, change of like changing the visa to be valid from two to five years was such a huge monumental change for like so many so many people. And it made my life easier too. Um and I think he was just yeah, he's Kenyan sweet Kenya's sweetheart. <laughs> if I can put it that way, you can tell I I'm, I speak pretty highly of him. <laughs> oh, no, I I can hear it. Well, that makes sense. I feel a lot of people speak very highly of Obama, but when you have that shared heritage, it's like another sense of pride. Yeah, it's like yeah, Jamaican definitely. people feel the same way about Kamala Harris right now, <laughs> and Indian people. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. So what drew you to Amherst? Did you specifically want a liberal arts college? Did you want that region of the United States? Were you just kind of following the opportunity and like scholarships and such? Yes, following the opportunity. Um, I will say one thing I did know I wanted is I wanted like a small student teacher ratio. Um, and that seemed to be promised by liberal arts institutions. It, at that time, I didn't understand like, okay, what's the university and a college? Like, what's the difference? Um, but it does seem that you're more likely to be in a classroom with, like, a less number of people to go to a liberal arts institution. Um, and so that kind of helped narrow and, like, filter down my um, college search. I also did like that Amherst has an open curriculum. So essentially what that means is you don't have to take any 
courses to like fulfill um, requirements, benchmarks outside from like the course load required for your major. So I know some schools have, you have to take like at least one science class or one math class, or one, one class in the humanities. Amerson have any of that. Um, and that really appealed to me. Um, I think one, I like the idea of like fully crafting my education, but also, you know, I think when you eliminate some course requirements or like mandating students to take classes because they have to fulfill such and benchmarks, it kind of helps that students actually enroll in classes that they want to take. Um, so I actually, I narrow down to like small student teacher ratio and open curriculum um, and not a lot of, not a lot of schools in the U.S. had both of those. The thing, I think Amherst was me blind, so they admitted the entire class, but without even knowing who needed financial aid, and then, uh, and then like, review that paperwork afterwards. So that also was pretty appealing. Um, and then also looking at, like, the international student population seemed pretty significant at the college. So I think that was also... One of the things I looked at, I did apply to multiple schools, um, but I think uh, out of the ones that got accepted, Amherst um, had the most promising, I guess, value, <laughs> if I could put it that way. And I, I also knew um, some alums who had also graduated from the African Leadership Academy were at Amherst College. Um, I did get in with two of my fellow classmates from the African Leadership Academy, so it was like there was a community there. Um, that I could relate to. So that kind of made it an obvious choice. I think the one thing which I did not consider at all, which I probably should have, was the weather. <laughs> I did not know winter could be so brutal. Um, and somehow I've powered through it this long and I'm still not used to it. But I, I had no idea that people took into account geography and it just, it hadn't occurred to me that that's something that you actually like think about. Um, but now that I, <laughs> if I if I knew better, I probably would have been more deliberate with applying to schools in the West Coast. I don't even <laughs> think I applied to any school in the West Coast because I didn't even think about it at the time. No, I think that it's funny. It happens to a lot of people. I feel like people don't take into account how huge the United States is. And I think it ties to like your earlier point about like not really knowing American culture. I think like it can be so localized because yeah. like... And I've lived in the Northeast my entire life. I feel like I would get culture shock living in the South for a prolonged amount of time, even though not as drastically as moving a country. But and I feel like things just are different there and and warmer. Yeah, I do think it's it's definitely different. And I have, I mean, I've traveled to um, the South and I've traveled to the West Coast as well. And then I've noticed how how different it is um, from the Northeast, although every, the people I've asked have always said that it's the Northeast that's different. <laughs> it's not them that's different. <laughs> um, but I have found it interesting. And even just like physically, how physically large, you know, it is that you can fly eight hours and still be in the same country. It's kind of wild. Um, and it's not something that I also thought about. I thought I'd be able to visit some of some of my <laughs> my friends like very easily the ones who are on the west coast the ones who are going to school in the south um but that was certainly not the case oh yeah no you can't you can't just pop over to hawaii yeah i unfortunately cannot <laughs> um yeah so I, that was definitely something i realized when i actually looked at the map and was like oh putting this in context 
um, this place is pretty big. <laughs> so did you feel like your school had a lot of, I know you mentioned there was a decent international student community, but do you feel like there was a lot of support for international students, like different events? Like, do you feel like the career office actually cared about international students? Yes, actually. I do think that we, um, we had a solid international student support system. Um, I do think that most of it had been rallied for by prior international students. I don't think it's something the school proactively did um, on its own, just listening to the experiences of the students who had enrolled much earlier. Uh, but I definitely did feel well supported, um, felt like we had someone to go to um, and also someone to sort of like fight, fight for us. Um, if there was something that international students needed, the fact that like, dorms, for example, stayed open um, throughout the holidays and they made sure like the dining hall was also open. Um, I know not all schools do that. Some schools just close. They shut down all dorms on the campuses and the dining hall shut down, shuts down completely and students have to figure out um, what to do or what, where to stay or like what to eat over the break. So like small things, small things like that. Um, and even just like listening to the experiences of students who were on campus um, during the pandemic, for example, who couldn't travel all the way home because borders were closed and the school making accommodations for them. Um, when it was briefly announced that if students were not attending classes in person, then they would have to return to their home countries. They quickly just came up with scenarios where, okay, if this is the case, then we can just like create this class as a stand-in for people to physically go to a classroom. And they joined the lawsuit, which had been filed um, by Harvard. There definitely is a good support system for international students um, on the campus. And I think it's a good number of people. I will say the largest percentage does come from from Asia, um, but there was a decent, decent number from other parts of the world as well. Okay. I thought that's just international student trends like across, because like, I worked at my school's international student office, like I've seen this kind of data. I'm like, that just sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. But it's good to know that you guys have had that level of support. If any international students want a good college, Amherst College. My sister went to Williams, so she probably won't like that. <laughs> Oh yeah, Williams is the worst. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. I just know that after I left Amherst, anytime I meet someone from Williams, I feel insulted. You just gotta fight that. <laughs> yeah, we weren't even a big sports school, but the rivalry was built in somehow. Uh, I think this when you go to like a small school like that, just, you you cling on to any kind of real school tendencies. <laughs> <laughs> that is. Very, very true. I One of the campuses I visited when I was an undergrad where I had some close friends at was um, Notre Dame. And seeing how wild their football games are um, was insane. Like, even our homecoming game, we did not have all the, like, seats filled. Even it was it was just a small seat field but like most people at the game itself were not even paying attention and it's like the stakes weren't high unless we were playing Williams then it kind of was but <laughs> um yeah it was super interesting to see it's when it came time for you sort of leaving Amherst getting your full-time role I was obviously as an international student like 
your options are limited. You kind of just want to find the company. But did you try to take the region of the the country into account more, or were you just sort of you didn't care again? In the beginning, when I sort of had or thought I had <laughs> enough time, I was like, I can be a lot more pickier with where I want to be located um, or the company I wanted to work for. But sort of as it came down to crunch time, my my um, location sort of expanded. I became a lot more flexible. And I did have I did have an offer um, in Nairobi from a prior internship. So I was I was sort of in the mindset where if I find an opportunity that's um, great here, um, then I'll take it. But I did sort of have an offer and it was kind of in the back of my mind that I could be going home depending on how things end up playing out. Um, but also I think as I was considering region when applying for jobs, I also had to consider, you know, adulting and paying rent. <laughs> and unfortunately, the more appealing places just seemed way too expensive. So when I was looking at like San Francisco, for example, um, just looking at like the, the rent prices and not even actively, just one from knowing what I'd, from what I've seen from like on different articles or on Twitter, it's just generally known that there's a housing crisis there and it's crazy expensive. And then recognizing um, Silicon Valley, having a hub there and the type of, of salaries they pay obviously makes the rent market so competitive. Um, and so I thought about that. Um, and then I thought about the South. South here being like Dallas, um, Austin, so I guess more blue cities <laughs> in southern states, um, but also recognizing that I would probably need a car to live <laughs> in those cities, um, from what I've heard. Um, but I did, I did sort of cast my net far and wide. But the truth is, for most of the companies which one do sponsor international um, students, they're typically pretty large, and they have hubs in the major cities. Um, and so for the most part, I would say the bulk of the roles I applied for were either based in Boston, New York, DC, um, or San Francisco. Yeah. And Amherst, yeah. And Amherst net network was pretty solid on the East coast. So I think also I emphasized my search there cause we did have like a strong alumni network actually found out about, you know, where we work from an Amherst alum. <laughs> so that's kind of how I ended up here. Um, so I think the network, the network also kind of forced me to pick um, a location. Um, but I, I did apply to jobs in, you know, in the US, I applied to jobs in Kenya, I applied to jobs in the Netherlands, Germany, London, Ireland, I was kind of ready to pack up and go anywhere. <laughs> you said I have options, I have a passport. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was like, now when I think back at it, I think I was, it was like very, it just seems so easy. Like I could just as easily, you know, take a job in New York as I could take a job in London or in Amsterdam. It just seems that, yeah, you know, I can do the thing, uproot myself, plant somewhere new. Um, and live there for like, you know, two, three years before deciding what's next. It it seemed kind of easy and not daunting. Um, 
And right now it feels, I guess right now it, I, I still think about it. It does feel a little bit <laughs> more daunting, but I do feel that I'm a little bit more rooted than I was. Like graduating college, it was just me and my three suitcases. I really could have landed anywhere uh, without having to think about the logistics of things, which right now I probably do have to think about it a little bit more. That's so real. Like I moved from college and I've lived in the same apartment. I just can't, I can't think about moving out. You have to like, uh, deassemble your bed and move all this stuff and get a truck and I don't drive. It really can, can, can relate to that currently. But I do feel like sort of when I get into the mindset of it, it, it doesn't seem too difficult. Um, or, and also for me, I do, I do tell myself that when you're new in a place, it gives you a lot more leverage to, you know, meet new people. You can just say, oh, I'm new here. Like, could you show me this? Or like, what do people do around here for fun? It's a lot more easier to um, work your way into a conversation or make new friendships when you're kind of new to a place versus you've been there for 10 years and you don't really have <laughs> um, any leverage. Um, and that's that had always been like one of the fears. It's, it's not necessarily like having to learn you know, what a, the do's and don'ts of a new city, of a new country, uh, new culture. Do I have to learn the language? It's always been like, can I find a community here? Um, which for me has also involved, you know, looking up YouTube videos on what is it like being Black in XYZ country? Um, and are there communities of Black people, of African people, of Caribbean people, people of the diaspora um, that I can find there? um as well so i feel like a lot of like the community building piece has always been what what has like if i can find that there then i think i i'm i would find it a lot easier to move but i think the older i get the more i feel like it's a lot more difficult <laughs> to find community and especially now you know depending on what the world looks like after the pandemic um how it shapes up it might be a lot more difficult yeah i don't know how people are going to go back to socializing and making friends and meeting people like <laughs> i don't even know if so i don't even know what can happen yeah yeah i mean i barely left my house before so i don't know <laughs> after this and as someone who's um you know a social introvert i i was very i was like very much you know glad to unplug in the beginning of the pandemic and now i also find myself you know longing for you know a packed bar even though the i was just like thinking okay when can i leave and head home <laughs> um i do miss um those moments and which i am very much surprised by so we'll see we'll see how it all goes so how do things change when you sort of go back to Kenya? Is there like a reverse culture shock thing going on? Like, does your family have any commentary on like your Americanization or lack thereof? <laughs> Actually, they, they do. Um, but I also feel like part of it is just in just like, I will just do the same things I used to do. And they're like, oh, you know, now I guess you're American. That's what you do. But I will say when when a complaint has to be made, if our Wi-Fi keeps cutting off or if our food is slow at a restaurant, they're like, Nora, can you do your American thing? <laughs> so in terms of, you know, asking for the manager style um, and very much falling into my American accent is something that they rely on to make <laughs> complaints, 
which I find hilarious. Um, but also I do feel that getting used to the level of service um, here does make me a lot more frustrated when things move slower back home. And I have become the person who occasionally complains. Um, so <laughs> that's one of the, the funny <laughs> things they do. They do notice about me. Um, one, there's two pieces to it. Like one, the more I wait, I'm away from home, the more I romanticize it. And I forget like some of the things which I do really appreciate about the U.S. Um, you know, like having like very reliant public transportation, the fact that, you know, I have an app on my phone that tells me how far away the train is. Um, so I know when exactly to leave my house. Um, you know, being able to walk around and use Apple Pay anywhere. Um, but I feel like those are conveniences that are of like the development countries or the first world in general, as opposed to being uniquely American. Um, and so one, I'm more likely to complain about those things, but also more likely to be alarmed. Um, I forget that people can sit in their cars for like three hours every day in rush hour traffic. And that's just part of your commute. Like in your mind, you know, maybe it takes me two hours to go to work or an hour and it takes me two or three hours to come back when in reality, in terms of actually distance from where you live to your office, it's maybe a 15 to 20 minute drive. Um, I feel like those are things which I hadn't, like they're things I knew from my youth, but right now I'm like, wow, <laughs> like this is actually real. Um, some of those um, smaller, smaller things. I do, I do miss, well, let me say the weather. <laughs> I don't know if the weather is a culture shock, but it's pretty nice to not have to dress for five different seasons in a day um, or check the weather <laughs> app. I actually don't check the weather app back home, but here I check it constantly. Um, there's that. I think the food, the food, it's not a, really a culture shock, but it's something that I wish I could bring with me. <laughs> um, whenever I come here and sometimes I, 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 there's, there's like meals I haven't had in, I guess a year or more just because I don't know how to prepare them or like the ingredients can't be found here. And I usually just eat them when I go back home, but it's so good. <laughs> um, and then I think, I think like the general pace um, and the vibes, let me say the vibes of the community, the vibes of the people. Um, it's, it's so interesting that when I meet, when I meet people um, for the first time, um, like I know so much more about them before I know what they do for a living. Whereas here, it feels like the de facto introduction is I am this person and this is what I work at in this place. Mm -hmm. um, and I had forgotten that, I mean, I feel work as identity is important, but certainly not as important as it is in the US. It's certainly not pe what people lead with when they're meeting new people um, or not take a massive amount of pride in um where, whereas here i do feel that people's circles tend to be uh, more related to i guess their professional lives um so you spend a lot of time at work and i guess you go for happy hour and so your work friends kind of become your life friends um or your graduate school friends become your life friends whereas back home it's it's pretty much 
there's such like a wide variety and so many different ways in which you can stumble um, into people and like form relationships. Um, and the conversations you have outside of work will rarely be about work. <laughs> um, so I do forget that that's, I guess, the one thing that's pretty alarming um, when I go back home. Or maybe when I come back here and I, I realize how much, um, how much importance or how much weight people attach to what they do um, as part of their identity. Um, so that's that's one other thing I can think of. That's crazy because like I don't know, I'm so used to that kind of interaction that I didn't even like consider it. I was like, what what else do you lead with? <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> the, the American in me. Yeah, yeah. I will say before before 45, politics used to be a culture shock, but now it's kind of you know, it's the same flavor, just a different different country. <laughs> You know, do people like not talk about politics openly in Kenya, or is it like very talked about? Oh, people definitely, definitely talk about it. Um, especially when it gets right around election season, when it's right around the cor- corner. Um, but I think in terms of how how people talk about it varies pretty meaningfully by generation. I've noticed so the conversations can range from like frustration to like just despair. <laughs> um, and then like discussing politicians as well. Um, I do feel that like, there, is, there is a lot of political tension along ethnic and tribal lines. So the, com- the conversation can, it, it, it needs to like tread a little bit carefully and um, I think people can make a lot of assumptions by your about your political affiliation based on your last name. So that's one thing. Back home, if um, if someone like knows your full name, they're more likely to know which tribe you belong to. Um, they can just like tell <laughs> by what your name is, and they can make an assumption about your f- political affiliation based on your tribe. So. Usually when someone asks you what's your name and you lead your first name and you're, they ask you about your second name, there's, there's some hesitation. So, oh, okay. <laughs> Where is this going? Especially if it's around election season. And actually I was, I was home during the most recent election and I remember a cab driver, driver asking me. And like I had a little bit of hesitation. <laughs> um, like, oh, why? Where is this question coming from? Like, why, why would you want to know this? Um, and here it's like, no one can ever tell. So I just, I will say my full names and has no implications at all. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's certainly one other political thing I'm, I'm wary of, but I do think that they're a lot more politically, like people are politically involved. Um, but it's, it's super interesting because here I feel like the parties are like the bipartisan structure feels very much aligned with values like traditional versus liberal. Um, whereas I do feel that back home, you can have two parties which have the exact same values, the exact same um, like proposed policies, but they're led by people who belong to two different ethnic groups and that becomes <laughs> how people vote. No. Well, those are the consequences of decolonization. Yeah, yeah. Retweet. Sorry. Uh, off of that, 
I guess the people on the African continent feel more attuned to like that ethnic tribe identity more so than like their country identity or not really? I think, I think depending, I think depending on the country you're from, I will say for Kenya, there does seem to be like sort of two major um, tribal groups, which has sort of been in this dance of power, like who's going to be the next president, what tribe they belong to. And it's usually just a, a, I think part of it is due to like one, whoever is in power, if they're more likely to grant government tenders to people from their tribes or prioritize like infrastructure development in where people from their tribes are located. Um, so it's just like, you know that you're gonna get or think you're gonna get some benefit by someone from your tribe becoming president. Um, although for the most part, <laughs> it doesn't trickle down as much, but it does in, in some cases. Um, I, I think people do identify with it more, especially with, I'd say my parents' generation. Um, I think for my generation, one, there's what what we're seeing is as so as more people from different you know tribes like intermarry um, and sort of like they move away from the specific regional places where their tribes live and move into the city or it's kind of like this you know, mesh of culture, melting pot, um, New York style. Um, you kind of interact a lot more with people from different tribes, so they're not as foreign to you, or you don't have to rely on the stereotypes that you hear to form an opinion. Um, so I do think that it's becoming a lot less important for my generation and the younger generations to identify with sort of like a tribal identity versus a national one. Um, and I do think that in general, like the country has been very wary of the consequences of, you know, really adhering to a tribal identity. We had, um, we had an election in 2000 and 2007, I think, um, where there was, you know, claims of a rigged election, um, and like one, one president won over the other candidate, but also they were from different tribes. And so it just became this, oh, they stole the vote, you know, type of thing. Very similar to the rhetoric <laughs> that <laughs> was happening over the past, um, got some deja vu. the past month or so. Yeah, but also it resulted in violence and there were a lot of people who were internally displaced from their homes. Um, and I think ever since, ever since then, people are a lot more careful with with um that type of speech and i also think even from you know a policing perspective um when it gets starts to head into dangerous territories then the the cops get involved because essentially it can turn into hate speech pretty quickly and incite violence really fast yeah that makes sense and it seems like the younger generation sort of you know being more in tune with their national identities is a step in the right direction so that's good yeah yeah, and I've also found very interesting that with the emergence of, you know, social media, um, Instagram, TikTok, that people are also becoming more attuned with, like, beyond their Kenyan identity and African identity and a Black identity in a way that if you were growing up in Kenya before Instagram, you weren't. Um, 
So I've seen, you know, Black Lives Matter protests happening in Kenya, like the NSTARS protests happening globally. Um, so I do think we're, I do think that we're starting to realize that, you know, no matter where we are, our, our struggles or like our fight is anchored in some similar, like there's some shared experience there, um, whether we're all fighting for equality, um, but it, it just manifests itself in different ways based on where you're located. Um, so I do think that it's, it's like fascinating for me to see and pretty encouraging um, for me to see like people transcending beyond like the identities of place and being able to identify with someone else's experience who's so far away, but also feels very close because, you know, you see their lives on the gram and it feels very similar to yours. I think that the show just goes to show the power that social media can have and just like all these different platforms connecting us, even though they, they have their dangers. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. They do have um, do have their downsides, but I do think there's there is um, like a positive positive side to it as well. So I guess overall, just reflecting on your experiences, you know, being born in Kenya, living in South Africa, then now in the United States, because how does it compare to what you expected or what you thought it would be? Well, I would say that. It's, I would say going in with no expectations <laughs> probably makes it a lot more easier to adapt um, or like going in willing to have those expectations challenged makes it a lot easier. Um, I have, I have like stumbled across, you know, places and things in America that remind me of Kenya, that remind me of South Africa. So I always have these moments where I'm like surprised by there are some similarities across the board. Um, and then also just the idea of like finding your community, finding your your people, um, your food, your music. <laughs> um, I think I've, I've been surprised by how many things I can surround myself with that actually make me feel like I'm home. Like I can legit just have a couple of friends over and we make, you know, Kenyan food and we're playing Kenyan music and I FaceTime my mom and I actually feel like, you know, I'm just an hour drive away and not like 7,000 miles <laughs> away. So I do, I do feel that that's like there are ways in which that has been challenged. Um, like my expectations have been challenged and I would say that one thing I wish was that mobility was a lot more easier for more people, especially if you're not a part of a country which has a favorable, you know, passport. I feel like there's so much of the world, like, I want to see too, um, but I can't because, yeah. you know, as a Kenyan, there's a million things I have to prove that I'm not going to come to your country and hide there for the rest of my life and prove that I have, like, I don't know how much money in my account to sustain my time there, um, I feel like that's been very frustrating. Um, but I think also how sometimes like how a country chooses to treat the people who are coming in, in terms of like the process of application, the immigration process trickles into how the citizens of that country feel about foreigners coming in. Um, so, you know, if you feel like you're, 
you're part of a nation that is, you know, needs to only bring in the top tier people and not and just anyone can come in. I think there is some sort of like a negative attitude that will trickle down from the policy which the government has made into like the attitude of the people towards towards foreigners. Um, so I think that's one of the things which um, I would want to change, I would wish to change, and I feel like it would be a lot easier to sort of like travel across the world and maybe not feel as high stakes to like uproot yourself temporarily for a year or two to experience something new if I didn't feel having to like go through such an exhausting process to prove that you're worthy of, you know, stepping into this place mm -hmm. temporarily. Um, yeah, those are some of my nuggets this year. I don't know if that answered your question directly. Honestly, it was interesting to hear anyway. I feel like I would get so frustrated. Like, I don't want to visit your country anyway if I need to jump through all these hoops. <laughs> oh yeah, I... I will say that, like, like one, for instance, Amherst made it as easy as it possibly could. Like, they sent over paperwork in the order in which I was just going to go and, like, hand it over um, to the embassy. And, like, not a lot of institutions do that. Like, you have to figure out a lot of steps as well. So I think they do. They did make it a little bit easier um, to go through that process. And I think some institutions do go out of their way. And like, even like the immigration team at work goes above and beyond trying to help people, you know, figure out um, like if in case like your papers don't get processed um, or you didn't get selected in the lottery, like what can we do for you? Can we relocate you to the Berlin office? Um, things like that. So they offer you options so you don't feel so alone. Um, so those are like some redeeming factors, like the institutions will occasionally make up for the frustrations that of the policies that the governments have put in place. But I feel like it's, it's definitely like a privilege to be a part of the institutions, which will, um, will sort of help alleviate some of those pains. And a lot of, not a lot of people experience that. Like you go through all the struggle and then you come here and then you're also like, you know, treated <laughs> terribly or like you don't belong or constantly being reminded that you don't belong. Um, and at the end of the day, you're just like, okay, <laughs> where can I go where I'm wanted? You know? Yeah, it's tough. And I think that response is actually a great segue to this next question, which is the flagship question I had that I asked every guest, is your migration mm -hmm. journey over? Do you see yourself returning home to Kenya permanently, continuing to live in the U.S.? having an adventure in another country, if they'll let you in? It's certainly not over. Um, I I do want to live <laughs> somewhere else. I, I, I would have hoped to have done it sooner, but I think the, you know, the pandemic kind of has us on pause. Don't want to make any sudden moves because we don't know um, what's going to change um, tomorrow. But I've always... I've always like wanted to live in Europe. Um, I studied abroad in Italy when I was an undergrad for around like five months and it was amazing. Got to hop around the EU um, for a while and it was a lot of fun. Um, granted, I don't know what it would be like living <laughs> there as a full-time employee versus living there as a student who just <laughs> is fine <laughs> with like all the <laughs> hopping around and 
um yeah so i would want to i would want to possibly live there for a while um and i i do know that i want to pursue a graduate degree at some point um and i'm not sure where where exactly but maybe in in the us or um in europe as well um and i do think that i i would want to i would want to move back home at some point whether to work there not sure whether it's like full term or like long term <laughs> or short term it's quite interesting that i do feel that i've spent i've spent so many of my formative years I mean, I guess my childhood also counts as my formative years, but my adult formative years outside of Kenya, and I've formed so many relationships with people who aren't Kenyan, that most of my friends actually are not Kenyan. Um, so if I do move back to Kenya, I probably will um, form new relationships and probably will be a lot easier to do so in my home country. Uh, but it would mostly just uh, be to kind of like connect with family um, and for the weather as well <laughs> but yeah i really i really don't know at this point it kind of feels like the world is my oyster and i will take the opportunities um to travel while i can and see see more of it um while i can the world definitely is your oyster and i, I i'm hoping you'll be in a, a probably a warm country that i can come visit one day <laughs> <laughs> because I, I don't take you for like an Iceland or Copenhagen <laughs> I don't oh, think you'll be no. there no <laughs> no um, and I've actually I had a I have like a, a, a sabbatical fund of like you know six months of wherever you want to be when you get tired of the corporate life and want to go on like a reflective um backpacking trip or just like move to an island and live on the beach for six months <laughs> it's one of the things on my bucket list too um so I now that i'm like checking that. things off by being on this podcast <laughs> i i have faith that that could be a possibility sometime yeah i have faith too well thank you so much nora it's been great speaking with you learning about kenya learning about your journey do you have any questions for me or anything that you want to plug or promote? Not really. I guess like for, I guess the main question for me, for you, I'd have would would be, um, yeah, what made you start this podcast? I feel like you've probably spoken about yeah. this on the podcast <laughs> itself, but. <laughs> Man, I've, it's, it's answered a few times, but I like answering it. Like, we might have new viewers. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a combination of a few different things. I, one, always wanted a podcast. I'm, I'm a talker. I, I know. So I thought it was a good medium for me, and I do enjoy podcasts. But then I've always mm -hmm. had an interest in my... Like, I work... I mentioned I did my work study at our campuses, international students, last study abroad office. So I, and I was always speaking with international students, engaging with them. But just also just naturally, like, I have this curiosity similar to like what you mentioned. I didn't travel a lot as a kid, but, like, I wanted to, and I imagined it. And then I just... Friends that were international students. So it kind of just all played out and I realized it seemed like a cool podcast idea and I wanted to learn about the world can't really travel in COVID so I feel like this is my you know version of it I feel like I take a trip each time I don't, I don't get a passport stamp though which is kind of annoying but... <laughs> well um hopefully through the network you'll through the podcast you'll also build a network of people you can visit and if you're ever in Kenya and need recommendations happy to 
to provide them. I'll definitely be coming in December. I'll have a new outfit for the morning, for the afternoon. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm gonna be, I'm and gonna it's mango season, so if you're a huge fan. Oh, yeah, that's, I, I love mangoes. I'm, I'm Jamaican, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't even know y'all they had, they had seasons. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a dumb American. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, Nora. Thank you for having me. It was so fun catching up with Nora and learning a little more about Kenya. I hope you all had as much fun as I did learning from her, hearing her story, and, you know, us cutting it up a little bit. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, please give our website a visit at pushpullfactor.com. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at pushpullfactor. And, of course, remember to like, subscribe, rate five, all of that good stuff. Have a happy holidays, everyone.